This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Evangelical presidential candidate Ted Cruz won all 34 of Colorado's delegates during last April's Republican State Convention. But when the Western Conservative Summit, sponsored by Colorado Christian University, begins Friday, the focus will be on Donald Trump, the presumptive nominee. This is his first major campaign stop in Colorado, and we're going to get a preview of the summit now from Jeff Hunt, who directs CCU's Centennial Institute. He is also a Trump supporter, and welcome to the program. Ryan, great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. After Ted Cruz won all the delegates at the state GOP convention, Donald Trump said they'd been stolen by phony politicians. What reservations did the Trump campaign have about the climate here in Colorado and uh, perhaps appearing at this summit? You know, there's a lot of drama following the state convention. And um, I think there needed to be a moment by which the conservatives in Colorado came together. And we wanted the Western Conservative Summit to kind of be that moment. I thought that there's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of passion going on. And I understand both sides of the argument. Um, I have friends on either side of that. And we wanted the summit to really be a place where both sides could come, share their voice, and hopefully kind of a, a collective movement could come out of that. And did that make Trump reluctant to attend, eager to attend, uh, you didn't hear until pretty close to the summit that he would be in attendance. Yeah, that was more his schedule. In fact, we heard from uh, some of the advanced people that this was one of the events that they had booked further out than a lot of their other events. And so I think it was more driven by the schedule and just the fact that this campaign was so in motion that it took them until about three weeks to confirm. But, um, you know, there were concerns. And I we had a number of cruise delegates that expressed their interest to the Trump campaign that they would love for him to come. And so we, we were grateful for that. Although Trump is the presumptive nominee, some of Colorado's delegates do plan to fight at the Republican National Convention next month. So I suppose you can't say that uh, the Western Conservative Summit will be the the salve for everyone. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, but I, I was meeting with Paul Ryan a few weeks ago, and I, I said to Paul, uh, to Speaker Ryan, I said, we've gotten Ben Sass and Donald Trump coming to the same event. That's pretty unique. And he was even pretty impressed by that. I think uh, Colorado's place as a purple state, the legacy that Bill Armstrong and John Andrews have built with the Western Conservative Summit. Bill and, Armstrong uh, is the uh, president yes. of, of Colorado Christian University. He'll actually be leaving that post soon. Yes, that's exactly right. He's a former U.S. senator. Um, they've built this great legacy. There's this unique position in the state. And um, the kind of timing of the largest gathering of conservatives outside of Washington, D.C., coming you know just a few weeks before the convention, really created a, a, a perfect mix by which you could have both sides of this argument. And hopefully, you know, my opinion is it, it's time to rally around the nominee. My hope is that we'll come out of the, this summit and the convention rallying around Mr. Trump. You mentioned Ben Sass, uh, the United States senator from Nebraska, and not a vocal Trump supporter at all. Yes. <laughs> uh, who has openly written to his fellow Republicans asking them not to support Trump. Last week, Trump met with evangelical leaders in New York City. Yes where they asked him about uh, his policies, his faith, and reaction was mixed. Some think he's just the leader the country needs now. Others think there's too big a gulf between his values and those of evangelical Christians. 
You initially supported Jeb Bush, then moved to Marco Rubio, then to Ted Cruz as the field changed on the GOP side. What concerns did you have as a Christian in considering supporting Donald Trump? The the primary issues were came down to character issues, right? That's really important for evangelicals. And I kind of like this tension. I, I think it's great because what you have is that evangelicals who hold on to character in their leaders is very, very important. You know, that you love your wife, that you care for your family or you love your husband, you know, whatever it might be, but that you're a person of character in leadership is really, really important. And so that was, I think, our primary concern initially during the primaries. And how did you reconcile that? Well, for me, and I don't really let my personal side get into the the upcoming Western Conservative Summit, but on on the political side, Honestly, that's how bad Hillary Clinton is. I mean, you look at the fact that Hillary is disastrous when it comes to foreign policy as her leader with her leadership as secretary of state, what's happened in the Middle East. In my opinion, the Middle East is far worse now than it was when Barack Obama inherited it and Hillary Clinton was his secretary of state. Um, Her issues on life, her issues on marriage, uh, the issues that conservatives care deeply about. She is so opposed to that that you go, you know what? I'm not going to get my perfect choice in this. I'm not going to get somebody that, you know, checks all the boxes for me. But Donald Trump is a lot better than Hillary Clinton. But it doesn't sound like you reconciled his values with your evangelical values. It's a bit like you're holding your nose values wise because the alternative in your mind is such a a poor choice. You know, his policies line up more. Does he have personal failures? Absolutely. We have concerns about those and evangelicals have concerns about those. Like what? Because, well, marriage matters to us, you know, and um, and. Those types of things that that he's referenced in the past, those are concerning to evangelicals, and rightly so, and they should be. In terms uh, of how he speaks about marriage, about oh, yeah, his commitment his to previous it. marriages, the ways he's talked about women, um, those are those are deeply troubling and should be. And I'm glad that evangelicals wrestle with that. But at the same time, it's we didn't get the perfect choice, and so the question before us is Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Well, or Um, a third-party candidate. Yeah, but I just don't think that's very likely. I mean, I worked with Governor Romney. Um, I worked with Rick Santorum before that. I know what goes into building a national infrastructure. This is primarily why I supported Jeb Bush initially. Um, I thought Jeb understood what was necessary to build a national campaign. I don't think a third party can do that. Now, maybe this year they might be able to. And and listen, I'm friends with Bill Crystal. I'm friends with Ben Sass. I'm friends with these people that have put forth ideas that maybe David French could have taken that role. But I thought that was unlikely as well. I think this is a good reference. Someone asked the, the president of Liberty why he was endorsing Donald Trump. Liberty University. Liberty University, another evangelical school out of Southern Virginia probably the largest evangelical school. And they asked him why he supported Donald Trump. And um, and he said, Donald Trump at least allows me to be the Christian I want to be. With Hillary Clinton, we have serious concerns around religious liberty issues. Look at what evangelicals had to face with the Obama administration, where it was lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit to be able to practice our faith. The Hobby Lobby decision, the Little Sisters of the Poor decision, um, Colorado Christian University is now dealing with Title IX exemptions. That's the next thing that's coming down. So does Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump better allow evangelicals to practice their faith? I, I think it's pretty clear that Donald Trump does that. If you look, though, at Donald Trump on the faith issue, you could point to his statements about 
uh, Muslims Mm -hmm. and say this is a man who makes judgments about people based on their faith. Um, Do evangelical Christians look at that and worry? And I think we have work to do there. I am a very, very, very big proponent of religious liberty. Um, I represented persecuted Christians in Washington, D.C. for years. I deeply understand what it is like to be a minority faith in a majority faith country. And Mr. Trump has work to do there. We have got to be a country that supports and embraces the importance of religious freedom. I think we're forgetting our history. I think we're forgetting what happened in Europe when different faiths got control and persecuted minority faiths. So my hope is that with the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, a lot of those bodies that are set up and have influence in Washington, D.C., that we'll be able to help Mr. Trump understand how important religious freedom is to the health of our society. But I also get where he's coming from, that there are deep concerns with the Muslim community on the violence that is coming from there and you know, that there needs would, to be considered. Some would say that the threat is from white men, <laughs> that, that most shootings are not at the hands of Muslims, but of mm-hmm. white men. You look at Aurora and you look at, uh, you know, Oklahoma City and you look at so many of the other mass Sandy shootings. Hook. Sandy Hook. Sure. That uh, Muslims, yeah. Muslims are not really where the concern should be. Well, it's, um, I, I wouldn't say that it's an either or, but a both and. You got to take both considerations seriously. We are speaking with Jeff Hunt from Colorado Christian University's Centennial Institute, host of this weekend's Western Conservative Summit in Denver. When we return, an evangelical pastor calls Donald Trump a baby Christian. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. My guest is Jeff Hunt, director of the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. The Institute sponsors the Western Conservative Summit, which starts tomorrow in Denver. Presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump will speak. Hunt is an evangelical Christian who supports Trump. James Dobson, founder of Colorado Springs-based Focus on the Family, was at that meeting of evangelicals in New York, and he gave an interview to a Pennsylvania pastor named Michael Anthony. Um, Here's a minute of that exchange. I mean, he did um, uh, accept a relationship with Christ. I know the person who led him to Christ. Really? And that's fairly recent. No kidding. Yeah. How recent? Uh, Well, I don't know. Oh, yes, yes. I don't know when it was, but it has not been long. And he, I believe he really made a commitment, but he's a baby Christian. Mm-hmm. We all need to be praying for him, especially if there's a possibility of him being our next uh, chief uh, executive officer. And uh, I think that uh, he's open. Uh, he doesn't know our language. Mm-hmm. You know, we we had uh, 40 Christians together with him. And he used the word, word hell four or five times. He doesn't know our language. He really doesn't. And he refers a lot to religion and not much to faith and belief. Now, a skeptic would say Trump is doing what he has to do to be elected you know, appealing to as many people as he can. I just want to point out uh, Jeff Hunt from the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. Just days before that, he told the gay community he'd be, quote, much 
better for the gays. Uh, Not something a candidate backed by evangelicals normally says. How do you square that? Yeah, I mean, for Mr. Trump, he's clearly trying to build a coalition. I think what he was saying in reference to um, the LGBTQ community was um, protecting them and and having to do with their safety more than endorsing their um, social policies. Um, But I I think he's building a coalition. And and when you're down to two choices, that's what's going to happen. Listen, we're evangelicals and evangelicals have differences of opinions with Mormons. And I served with Governor Romney, even though I have serious theological differences with the Mormon community. But at the end of the day, I felt that he was a better choice than Barack Obama is going to better represent our community than that. Similarly with Mr. Trump, you have someone that, yeah, like uh, Dr. Dobson said, you know, is learning the language of the community. Um, Is he with us 100 percent on everything? Probably not. But he's going to better represent us than the alternative is. And when you're down to two choices, that I'm, I'm a bit of a pragmatist on this. I want to push back on the idea that you can count on what he has told you. <laughs> um, PolitiFact, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning project of the Tampa Bay Times, fact checks statements made by politicians. And in its file on Hillary Clinton, the presumptive Democratic nominee, it said 12 percent of her statements were found to have been false or pants on fire, false, 12%. For Trump, the number was 59%. Right. More than half of what he says PolitiFact finds to be inaccurate. So how can you trust the assurances you've heard from Donald Trump that make him uh, an acceptable candidate in your mind? Yeah, that's a great question. And and honestly, maybe it's the assurances of, of Secretary Clinton that I should be more concerned about. Yeah, I agree that Mr. Trump has an issue there. And and my hope is that he's going to reflect us if he is elected. But if, if you look at, again, the two choices and Hillary Clinton says that she's going to continue to challenge religious liberty issues when it comes to the LGBT community and the the debates that are happening there. She's adamantly pro-choice. She's terrible on foreign policy. I mean, we may have a challenge with Mr. Trump on kind of you know, making sure that he's consistent in his policy follow-ups and what he's going to say. But um, I'm honestly, I'm far more concerned with the fact that Secretary Clinton is going to do what she is going to do or what she is saying, because that's a that's a bigger challenge to us. And yet, isn't honesty an important Christian value? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and my, again, my hope is that he's going to be somebody that would follow up on his policies. But we're dealing with somebody here that, with regards to Mr. Trump, that hasn't held elected office. So a lot of this is new charted territory. So my hope is that he's going to be a person that's honest. And again, this gets into the kind of character issues that evangelicals are concerned about. And that's reflected in the polls that you saw where evangelicals have these deep concerns about Mr. Trump. So when you have conversations with other evangelicals who are not sold on Donald Trump, First of all, where are they leaning? Do they lean to not voting at all? Do they lean third party? Do they lean Clinton? They're just kind of living in the tension right now. Uh Um, They haven't made up their mind. I think, um, you know, and I walked through this in 2012. There was a period by which um, there had to be a transition to the nominee. Um, A lot of people that were Rick Santorum supporters or Mike Huckabee supporters in 2012. Let me say that Rick Santorum won Colorado. Yes, that's right. In 2012, won Iowa. In fact, I think won 11 states. Um, and there was a period of transition. Now, this transition's taking longer. I'll grant you that. It's far different than it was in 2012. 
But I think when you get down again to what the choice is going to be in November, the likely choice, you're going to walk into a ballot box, you have to choose between Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I think most evangelicals by that point will um, have come to terms with supporting Donald Trump. Are you afraid they'll stay home? That's a real challenge. And that honestly, that's an infrastructure challenge as well. So um, if you look at this point, by this point in 2012, Governor Romney had a whole floor of an office building in Lakewood that we were working out of. We had a whole team. We had probably 30 staffers there. I had five, six people on my coalition team by that point. We had four communications directors. We had ground games in every major county. That was what was happening at this point in 2012. I haven't seen that come out in uh, in this election from the Trump campaign. And that is very concerning. So will they stay home? It's a combination of factors. One, can they find that they have a champion in their candidate, right? Or at least somebody like uh, the president of Liberty said that is going to allow me to be me. Um, And two, will they be asked, I guess is what you're saying, by the campaign? Will will there be the ground game? Right. Will will that infrastructure be there to get them out to vote? So it's a combination of factors. And honestly, it's a concern. Back to the summit. Um, Who who is the audience for it? It, It's kind of a big tent. Um, They tend to be social conservatives, what I would call the three-legged stool Reagan conservatives, right? People that are concerned about social issues, concerned about economic free markets, uh, low government regulations, and then strong national defense and an active foreign policy. So with that said, we do have a lot of libertarian friends that show up. We have friends from kind of more moderate leanings, uh, new people that show up. But for the most part, it's that kind of three-legged stool Reagan conservative that will be there. Do you hope that he'll announce his Veep this weekend? That's a good question. Are you wondering if this is the moment? Uh, We have not heard that. That's our straw poll. So uh, at the summit, we'll release at the end who our delegates will find as the uh, vice president, who they would like to see be that person. So, Is there a list or anyone can nominate? We'll have anyone? a list. Yeah, we'll have a list. Can you tell so, us who's on it? I've asked that Carly Fiorina be on it. I'm a big fan of, of Miss Fiorina. She's brilliant. She spoke at last year's summit. Very, very smart, very kind, strong on all the issues, strong on the social issues that that we care about. Um, and a former presidential candidate. Of yes. Yeah. Ted Cruz recognized it as well. <laughs> uh, so uh, we've even put some fun ones on there, Mr. Ben Sass. So uh, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> uh, this is your first year running the summit after the retirement of former Colorado State Senator John Andrews. And uh, the Centennial Institute says the summit is the largest gathering of conservatives outside of D.C. Yeah. Your other speakers include Sarah Palin this year, uh, Carly Fiorina will be there, yes. and uh, Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty, uh, who's been something of a cultural lightning rod. Um, what are your hopes for this summit? I I'm really f- am interested in conversation, and we've brought in what I would consider the best and brightest minds of particular issues. So if you look at previous summits, last year we had seven presidential candidates, and that was fine, but after seven stump speeches, it's you kind of heard a lot of the same things, right? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> Barack Obama's terrible, all that stuff. Um, but uh, I wanted to focus particularly on policy issues um, and finding experts in particular policy issues. So we have Ryan Anderson, who's on kind of the marriage transgender issues, Lila Rose on life issues, Frank Gaffney on, on Muslim issues, David Keene, former president of the NRA on gun issues. So we've brought in experts on particular issues to really drive really good conversation 
around um, how conservatives can respond to the hottest topics of the day. So, No doubt Monday's yeah. Supreme Court ruling on abortion in Texas will be fodder at the summit. Yes, absolutely. And I'm very grateful to have Lila Rose. Lila Rose is the president of Live Action. I, I don't even think she's reached the age of 30 yet and has built um, arguably one of the biggest and most influential pro-life organizations in the country. What does Donald Trump get out of this summit by attending? I, I mean, we're we're going to have a really important moment. Um, we haven't talked a lot about this publicly, but the person that's going to introduce Donald Trump is Steve House, chairman of the Colorado Republican Party, who, um, you know, after everything that happened here in the state convention, uh, is, it needs to be a moment of coming together. A lot of frustration among Republicans that there wasn't, for instance, a straw poll taken at the caucuses, and then the tension, obviously, that followed through to the state convention. Yeah. Thanks for being with us, Jeff. Yeah, great to be with you, Ryan. Jeff Hunt directs the Centennial Institute, a think tank at Colorado Christian University. The Western Conservative Summit starts tomorrow at the Colorado Convention Center in Denver. Hunt mentioned Donald Trump's lack of a ground game in this state. Well, in related news, on Wednesday, Trump hired a state director. He is veteran political operative Patrick Davis of Colorado Springs. Coming up, things appear to be just peachy on the Western Slope. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They are picking peaches in Palisade, and weather conditions in western Colorado are unusually ripe for fruit production this year. Bruce Talbot is a fifth-generation fruit grower in Palisade and joins us from our studio in Grand Junction. And to Bruce, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. I can't think of what my family was doing five generations ago. Uh, remarkable that they've been growing peaches for that long in, in uh, on the Western Slope. We got uh, water in 1881, and within about 10 years, there was a fairly significant uh, scattering of fruit through the Grand Valley. And um, in the early 1900s, there was a some people came from Greene County, Iowa, and did a lot of promotion of, they came here, they loved it, they thought they'd found nirvana for health reasons and for fruit growing reasons. And, uh, you know, I read some of the early promotions that uh, said the Grand Valley was even more dependable than the San Joaquin Valley in California, which <laughs> you have to smile a little about. <laughs> but, uh, uh but Green County, Iowa people came and then uh, started a letter writing campaign back to Iowa. And over a period of 20 or 30 years, an awful lot of Iowans came here. About half the people were from Iowa. We used to have Iowa days. And my great great granddad Jaeger came in 1906 in part of that um, group. In uh, 1918, my great granddad and my grandmother came. Well, you have the long view for sure. So, how would you describe this year's peach harvest and then maybe extend that to other crops because lots of other fruits grow there? We had a very benign winter. And so, we came into this spring with buds on everything that were viable. Uh, we had a, also a benign spring. Um, you know, the canary in the coal mine is the apricot, and there are apricots in most places in western Colorado this year. So if you've got that, you usually have almost everything else. Oh, interesting. So benign, right? I wouldn't want to be described as that myself, but that's a good way to describe <laughs> the weather if you're a peach farmer. In perennial crops, boring is good. <laughs> Dramatic on either end is not what we want to see. So how unusual is the, the, the bounty? We are 
near or at full capacity on what peaches can do this year. Uh, some other crops are down a little bit, but um, you know you start with a full crop and then you whittle away. We've had a little bit of hail damage, which in order to clean up the crop, people have had to thin some spots more than they wanted to. So those will not be a full crop. But we're still sitting on 90% of uh, tree capacity at this point. 90% of tree capacity. Are there still obstacles looming, though? We can still get hail. Um, we can get uh, disease problems if we get uh, too much rain and don't uh, respond appropriately with corinium blight and powdery mildew. And then you've always got labor and uh, logistics and marketing that can affect a crop outside of your natural challenges. Would we describe this as a peach glut? In other words, if you have too many peaches, doesn't that make each one of them less valuable? It can do so in uh, anybody that's selling locally, uh, farm stand, or maybe some of the local farmer's market. But Colorado only does about uh, 25 million pounds of peaches a year, which in comparison to California is four or 500,000, and South Carolina is 108, uh, four or 500, uh, yes. And there's 180,000 um, that come out of... Uh, I'm million. I'm getting this wrong. Well, that's okay. It's 180 I... million out of South Carolina. There's uh, four to 500 million out of California and 25 million out of Colorado. So we're a very small fish in the big puddle. Hmm. Is it that you find maybe other ways to add value? So it's not just that you sell peaches, but maybe you sell peach products or something. We do some of that. The How Colorado markets is that we are the alternative uh, in late July, August, early September to what has been available all summer from uh, mostly California. And so we add a newness to the produce counter and we push fruit to as close to soft and completely ripe as possible. And so our receivers know that when they get it, it has to be handled quickly. But the trade-off is it's very high quality and has a very strong following, especially, you know, in the Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, which is where an awful lot of our fruit goes, that that leaves Colorado. Oh, so they talk about Palisade peaches in Nebraska? Oh, yes, definitely. Mm. We, uh, we have, you know, friends throughout the industry and a major South Carolina producer was talking to our Des Moines receiver, and he says, why do I get cut off when Colorado comes on, and what do I got to do to stay in the game? And the answer from Des Moines was, deliver Colorado peaches to us. If you can do that, we'll let you back in the game. So there is something special in what we do. You have said elsewhere, I understand, that Peaches shouldn't grow in Colorado at all, that the winters in general are too cold, there are too many early warm-ups in spring, and there's too much hail. Can you explain uh, why peaches do grow successfully in Colorado? I, I understand it has something to do with air drainage. I didn't know that this existed, air drainage. Yes. The... Um of course, we have to have water before we even start the discussion, yeah. but most of Colorado is too hostile, it's too cold uh, for growing peaches or most fruit, and we get, it warms up in the spring, and then it turns around and drops 30, 40 degrees and, and kills a crop that started to come out. What we have is certain microclimates in different places 
where the cold air in an inversion, most of our freezes are inversion freezes. And that cold air will move off of downstream, off of the ground that we're trying to protect. Uh, the Palisade area has natural drainage that comes down out of the mountains. And by midnight, we usually have a 10 to 15 mile an hour breeze. And um, that is enough to push all that cold air down to the Grand Junction fruit area, which they don't grow fruit there as a result. Uh, and it keeps us warm enough that we're we're viable. And, you know, there's lots of other little microclimates around Colorado, but uh, Palisade is definitely the biggest and the most uh, consistent. Mm. And so you are exceptions to the Colorado rule, I suppose. We are exceptions to the Colorado rule, and we even occasionally get bit. Uh, when there's two times we get bit, and that is when a cold front comes through and clears off in the middle of the night, and there's not time for that drainage to set up, and we can get into critical temperatures uh, prior to drainage developing. And then if we have a storm from the west at 10 miles an hour, it'll neutralize that wind. And as a result, we have wind machines that uh, are our backup, and uh, we run those two or three nights of spring usually just to make sure we're going to have a crop. And they don't always work. But it gives us a crop probably two-thirds of the time that we might have lost it ah. anyway. So just briefly before we go, other fruit that's doing well? Um, cherries were down a little bit, but part of that was because they had such a heavy crop last year they didn't set well. The apple crop, which is mostly Delta County, is really strong this year. And part of that has to do with alternate bloom. They did not, they froze last year, so they're coming back uh, with a bumper crop this year. Uh, Pears, you know, pears, you get some every year. They're the blue chip fruit. The blue chip fruit, Colorado pears. You you never make a lot of money, but you make a little money every year. Uh, Cherries are the Las Vegas fruit. You make a kill in one year, and then you lose it all in the next two years. <laughs> I love all these terms. Bruce, thanks for sharing them with us. Uh, thanks for your interest. Bruce Talbis, as we said, a fifth-generation fruit grower in Palisade. He and other growers in the area are harvesting largely a bumper crop, and uh, cherries, apricots, and some early peaches are already on store shelves. Moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat me a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. Coming up, Denver's first youth poet laureate will serve a longer term than she first thought. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Nigerian-born, Colorado-raised Toluanimi Obuwole often deals with the duality of her identity in her poetry. The 21-year-old is Denver's first-ever Youth Poet Laureate. Since her appointment more than a year ago, she has spoken at city events, including the inauguration of Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. She competes in the Southwest Regional Poetry Slam this weekend in Denver, and her term as Poet Laureate has been extended another year. Obawole sat down with me before the release of her latest collection of poetry last fall. Toto, welcome to the program. Thank you. So you were born in Lagos, Nigeria, and um, came to the U.S. when you were about three, eventually relocating to Colorado. I understand your parents wanted you to go to school in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, You say your family, especially your father, maintained strong ties with Africa and, quote, 
recreates Nigeria here in America. Yes. What do you mean by that? So in everything that we do, it must be done in the quote-unquote African way. So... Mainly academics is academics is huge, especially in Nigeria. With Nigerian parents, it is expected of you to go to college. It is expected of you to go to school and get higher and higher degrees, and you must do it in something that makes you marketable or useful, as what they say to the world. So, and are you on what some would deem a useful, marketable path, or have you had tensions with your family over that? Up until last week, I was on the the useful path. I was studying architectural engineering, and now I'm transitioning out of that into ethnic studies. And it's it's a huge jump. <laughs> and how did your family react to that news? Um, I think they're still processing it. They're still wondering, um, so what exactly are you going to do with your life now that you are an ethnic studies major? Right. Under, with the first major, they would have expected you to build or design something. Absolutely, yes. And I suppose it's a bit less clear now. Mm. Are there other examples of how your father recreates Nigeria in America? One thing is we always had we had to learn the language. We had to speak the language. At home, they would speak the language to us. Um, he would always verbally remind us that you are African, you are not American. And so... There is a certain way that you have to speak. There's a certain way that you have to carry yourself. I don't want to use the word uptight, but it, kind of, it was kind of like that. But a, a cultural uptightness, you think? Yes, uh-huh. yes. And are you Ibu, Yoruba? Yoruba. Yoruba, okay. Yes. Which has a separate language than Ibu, is that right? Yes. Okay. okay. And so that's a language you speak? Yes. Mm-hmm. You hold American citizenship. Though. I do. So to have your father telling you you're not American, you're African... How do you process that? I think what they were trying to do was they were trying to raise me in the best way possible, which for them was very strict. There were a lot of rules. There was a certain way that I had to dress and act, and I could only go certain places. They had to monitor my friends and all those types of things. It was was a very strict upbringing. It was was very good for me. But it's a bit like they were trying to... I don't know, insulate you a bit from America? Does, is, do you think that's true? Oh, yes, absolutely. A lot of African parents have the fear that their children will grow up to become too Americanized. So, and, Yeah, what does that mean? I think what they mean by that is um, a lot of the images that you get back home, especially like from TV and everything like back home in Nigeria, like you have satellite TV, you have every single channel. So what they see is they see the kids on, you know, Disney Channel and Nickelodeon, all of those, and they see them getting into trouble. They see them acting out and doing all of these crazy things. And they're like, we don't want our children to be like that. And we don't want our children to, you know, talk back to their parents or to act unruly. And so I think that's what they mean by Americanized. American for them is Hannah Montana. Pretty much, Or yes. perhaps what, <laughs> what Hannah Montana has become. Yes. Okay. Have you been able to go back to Nigeria at all? Yes, yes. Um, a few times. And it has been beautiful and wonderful every single time. And I'm planning on going back very soon. I want to go back and visit my family, visit my friends. Are there a lot of images that appear in your poetry from Nigeria? Oh, yes. The last trip that I took back home was in 2013. And 
it was it was kind of wonderful because we traveled around a lot. We visited my grandfather's village, both on my mom and my dad's side, and um, we went to my dad's hometown. And a lot of the times there wasn't internet connection, so I wasn't constantly connected to my phone or to data or whatever. And so I was able to take in everything, and I was able to, to write. actually look up from the device. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I was able to like really absorb and be home. And that prompted a lot of writing, and that prompted a lot of the writing in my book. Could you uh, recite a, a particular poem for us that you think draws inspiration from that? Yes, I could. Let me bring it up. Let me note she is picking up her phone this time. I am picking up my phone. Totally separated poetry from it. device. And this poem deals with both uh, issues of home and uh, issues of beauty and growing up in this body. And what's it called? And it's called Alter. Alter. I prepare an altar for myself in the presence of my enemies. I am the love child of African ugly and British missionary school. The tips of my ears are delicate from the hot combs and carefully selected Bible stories and every woman who will say my name as Jezebel to their sons. I know what it's like to look in the mirror at 21 and not know who you are without the shame. I know most days the definition of beautiful is dragging, is scaling the flat side of a mountain with no grips. I know pretty is coded, and I want to fling it off the roof of the city I am standing on. When your skin takes up as much space as mine, you are always standing on top of a city. You are always both the elephant in the room and the bleeding body impaled on its tusk, apologizing for the mess instead of asking for help. How do you ask for help when you feel you don't have the right to raise your hand in class, step on white carpets, or touch the pretty glass in your best friend's home? There is an unspoken rule about girls with skin stained with the earth's first intentions. I prepare an altar for myself in the presence of my enemies, even when the enemy wears my face. A poem from Denver's first youth poet laureate, Toluanimi Obuwole. Oh, there's so much imagery to talk about there, <laughs> um, including a reference to your being black as having the skin stained with the earth's first intentions. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Uh, it sounds like it was not necessarily easy to grow up black in, in your shoes. Absolutely not, especially when you have the dichotomy of being African and then coming and being immersed in American culture. So you kind of grow up feeling like you have an obligation to your tradition, you have an obligation to your country, but at the same time you want to have kinship with the other black students, but it's almost like you're not black enough for the black students. Right. The difference between being African and African-American uh, mm -hmm. with, with all of the all of the history that that conjures up, I guess. Absolutely. And when I say black, I'm specifically speaking to American blackness because blackness no. translates differently all across the diaspora. That is to say, though, you would approach uh, perhaps in your class black students who were born in the United States and they just didn't welcome you. They just didn't – it didn't feel like home. It didn't feel like home. I think mostly because I, I didn't grow up with the same culture. Even differences in food and or listening to the same types of music. So there is this there is this big disparity and I felt like I had to catch up almost to American culture. 
and I did mostly in high school, but then coming to college and really trying to re-identify with my with African culture and my tradition, I was never fully separated from it, but mm. really trying to immerse myself in both and trying to walk in both identities has been a very interesting journey. And I think I'm much more culturally rich because of it. But it sounds like it's been a pendulum. That is, you tried so hard to assimilate, and now you're thinking, "Uh, let's do a balance of these identities. Absolutely. And I think there always needs to be a balance. It sounds like in that poem, and I think that any young woman struggles with this, and young men too, you struggle with whether you're pretty or not. Yes. And pretty, like I said, pretty is a coded word because Uh striving to be pretty and wanting to be pretty it is adhering to a system of oppression. Pretty in of itself is a system of oppression because it determines who has power and who doesn't based on mainly in America, European standards of beauty. Features, facial yes. features even. Facial, and, uh, and body types. Facial features, body types, hair type. I remember growing up, I had really beautiful long hair and it was very curly and it was in an afro and... I used to get made fun of a lot, especially in elementary school and middle school, because I went to primarily white schools and they had never really interacted with someone who had my body type or my hair type. So I was made fun of a lot and I begged my mother to relax my hair, which chemically straightened my hair. And I could tell she was heartbroken. She was... She was saddened by the fact that I didn't think that I was enough or that I didn't think that I was beautiful on my own. It's like you weren't just stripping the curls, but you were stripping something about yourself. Absolutely. I was definitely stripping my identity. I was recolonizing myself is what was happening. And when I reached my sophomore year in college, I decided that's it. That's enough. It was after my trip to Nigeria and I decided to cut off all of my hair. So I cut off all of my hair very close crop, nearly shaved it. And I've been growing it out ever since. And it has been a lovely, incredible journey of just rediscovering and finding myself. And you join us today with long braided hair. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> right. It's such a fascinating concept to think that someone can be beautiful in one place mm-hmm. and not in another mm. or considered beautiful. Yes. You know, that that's so contextual. And it is. it is due to the systems of oppression that are set up all around the world um, based in a historical context after the the Atlantic, the transatlantic slave trade, you set up the system of race, you set up the system of white supremacy, which after all of that set up the system of capitalism. Pretty is a subset system of oppression of capitalism. People wanting to be pretty, you know, you buy into all of the products Everything that you need to purchase in order to be happy and pretty, pretty is synonymous with happy in this system of oppression. And we need to break the binary of beautiful because right now beautiful in America is a binary. Somebody is beautiful, which means somebody has to be ugly. But if we break that binary and we really see how beauty translates into each and every person, I think that is that is how you destroy capitalism. <laughs> Destroy capitalism. Yes, is that, that is the ultimate goal. That is your ultimate. Uh, I wonder if Denver knew this when they signed you on as Youth Poet Laureate. I don't. I, you you think have a, they a mayor did. who I suppose <laughs> you know embraces capitalism and development. Oh, yes, absolutely. And 
that that's another one of the challenges that I've run into as the youth poet laureate is I'm, I'm not necessarily supposed to take a side, but... Well, that you've thrown that out the window. <laughs> I have you? definitely thrown that out the window because I feel that being in this body, doing work as a person of color is inherently anti-capitalist, which means that I am right now breaking the system by working. And um, I think that when I run into things like TED Talks or speaking at city officials' inaugurations, I have to become neutral. But that is very difficult for me. So I never I never want to push or politicize anybody or politicize anything or like, you know, push my ideals onto anyone. So what I try to do is I try to make people think and consider the system that they're living in. Like, just just consider it. Just think about it. Let's have you read one more poem before we go. Absolutely. Um, Salt and Sea Glass? Yes. Will you set this up for us? Yes, absolutely. So this one um, I wrote about my mother, and it definitely addresses the issue of growing up as a very traditional African child and then realizing what I truly want to identify as and finding out that it it clashes with the way that she grew up. And so sometimes it fosters feelings of inadequacy and feelings that, oh, you know, I'm becoming the person I want to be. But at the same time, I'm kind of like destroying my mother's child. Yeah, I think it's a very common experience um, to disappoint one's parents, to not be exactly what they imagined for you. So, and this will be in the in the the chat book that's coming out, the short book of poetry. Yes, this okay. will be part of it. Here we go. Salt and Sea Glass from Denver's Youth Poet Laureate, Tolowanimi Obuwole. I want to stop being so scared when my mother calls. I never had to clean my mouth so much before speaking. The salt on my lips is the only thing I remember after our conversations. I want to bathe away what offends her about me. I'd have to scrub off my hands, rough and lined with the stories she knows I have that I can't tell her. If daughters are their mother's reflections, I've dropped the screen too many times, drawn all over it in bright pink crayon. The edges are singed from sitting too close to the fire. My mother is a glass ship floating on pure waters. I've got too much sand and lighter fluid on my fingers to really touch her anymore. I'm growing up and I'm scared she knows. What if she doesn't recognize me anymore? My bones don't feel any different but she holds my arms like they're heavier. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Toluanimi Obuole is Denver's first Youth Poet Laureate. I spoke to her last fall. Her appointment has been extended another year. Obuole competes in the Southwest Regional Poetry Jam this weekend at the Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Studio in Denver. Finally today, 2016 is half over, or half begun, depending on how you look at it. In any case, our colleagues at CPR's Open Air are looking back on their favorite new music releases of the year so far. One of them is from Dressy Bessie. The Denver band, now in its 20th year, has built its reputation on guitar-driven pop and on singer Tammy Elam's breezy vocals. From the album King-Sized, here's the track Lady Liberty on Colorado Matters from CPR News. Get it on, let it out. There's no room for angry people trying hard to get 
trying hard to 